0: Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Be still before our God. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord Jesus, we just sang that your name is above all names. And thank you. The Father has appointed a time when that name will be honored in every way even the unbelieving, God-hating, Christ-rejecting world you promised would bow and confess you as Lord. We know that you are willing for none to perish but for all to come to repentance. And that the only reason you have stayed the return of your Son from heaven is because you are a patient, not willing for any to perish. And so we pray tonight as we discuss money, which you said in many ways is a measure of where we are in our spiritual journey. And we know it's not your desire that we be encumbered and worried and caught up with the things of this world, but that our free time thoughts might be on the advancement of the kingdom. So teach us your ways, your ways we know are not our ways. Your thoughts are not like ours as high as the heavens are above the earth. Are your ways and your thoughts greater than ours? So we subject our minds that you've given us to the authority of your Holy Scripture. Teach us your ways, O Lord. Help me tonight as I open your word. May the Spirit of God teach and work behind the scenes. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are with us for the first time, we are in a series on the Bible as it relates to finances god's way tonight we begin section three section one was the section on stewardship section two that we've spent the last five or six weeks on concern the subject of giving tonight we move into section three where we deal with the subject of saving and investing and there are many uh goals that i have for our time this is not comprehensive but these are some of them by the end of this session they're on page 49 It's my desire that you'll be able to name several biblical reasons why we should be faithful to save. Secondly, to understand what God thinks about what we would call a get-rich-quick scheme. We want to state the biblical teaching on acquiring wealth. We want to examine several biblical warnings concerning wealth. We want to know how to develop an emergency savings plan. And then we'll also try to comprehend the relationship between saving and insurance. Should Christians even have insurance? People debate that sometimes. And we'll get into the nitty gritty of right down to why you should have a will. And if you don't have one, how can you get one? And what steps can you take? So a lot of practical things here in this section on saving. So by way of introduction, Number one there, to truly be successful in life, we need to find wisdom. God wants us to be wise men and women. And I'm so thrilled that some of you dads have your sons and daughters in here because they need to become wise. They need to be on the same page someday when they get married as their spouse in terms of dealing with finances. In Proverbs 3, 13 through 16, God gives a description of the person who finds wisdom. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. A long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. So God promises that the man who finds wisdom and gains understanding— which is seen in his ability to take the truth of God's word and apply it to his life, this man is blessed. So just understand that when the Scripture uses the term wisdom, it's not knowledge simply. It's not simply information. There are some people with PhDs in theology, and they are very knowledgeable, but they're not wise. Wisdom is the ability to take God's truth and apply it to your daily life. It's putting truth into shoe leather. And God says, the person who does that, this man is blessed. The person, number four, who stores up wealth and acquires riches without wisdom will soon find that his money grows wings and flies away. Is that not what Proverbs 23 5 says? When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Honestly, I saw this even as recently as the last great recession that we had. Some people who were living big, but not wisely. And because of that, they lost greatly. And for some decades of work dissolved in a short period of time. And so... It's not just a measure of how much money we have, whether we're rich or middle income or low income or however the world would want to classify us. It's what we're doing with what God has entrusted to us. We will learn in this session that a wise man knows what to do with wealth when he obtains it. The person who learns to save God's way will love people and use things. But without biblical wisdom, he will love things and use people. He quickly loses perspective, and he's driven by materialism rather than by the things of God. Unfortunately, some Christians automatically assume that saving indicates a lack of faith, or that if we save, we rob God of blessing us with His provision. Oh, I'm providing because I'm saving and I'm not really trusting God. Some Christians actually think that way. And that's why many have zero savings. It is essential that we learn God's wisdom as it relates to saving. For God wants his people to save. And he gives us at least five reasons as to why we should save. So under Roman numeral one, we're going to examine why Christians should save. We're going to look at five specific reasons given in the word of God why you as a believer should save. Biblically speaking, we will learn that saving is not a demonstration of a lack of faith, but rather an expression of obedience concerning what God has called His people to do. So it's actually just the opposite. When you obey God, you are responding in faith. You are doing what His Word says. That's the nature of faith. God says something and you respond in obedience. So why should Christians save? We're going to look at just two tonight. First, we should save because the wise man plans for the future. That's what the Bible teaches, the wise man plans for the future. Now, some people are guilty of saving too little, and so ignoring an important responsibility to be prepared for the future. While others are guilty of saving too much, crossing the line from saving into hoarding. And by the way, hoarders don't necessarily have to be rich people. They can be poor people. Um, My son lives in the Washington, D.C. area, and there was a home that his friend brought, and he says, Dad, you gotta see this place. And it was down the street from him, and the homes in the neighborhood, they're way overpriced in D.C. A home here that is 200,000 is half a million there in the D.C. area, and that's, and that's um, that's in Maryland. Uh, The closer you get into the capital, the higher they go. But this lady had lived in this house for 30 years, and then suddenly she disappeared. Nobody knew where she went. And after a while, they had to do something with the house, and his friend was able to buy it. So Steve brought me into the house. And this lady was a hoarder like I'd never seen. There were these little paths like this that you could walk through and literally, things were stacked seven and eight feet high in every room of the house. She had been collecting junk for decades. She was a hoarder. Now you don't have to hoard to that extreme. And sometimes poor people are quote-unquote hoarders. So it's not an issue of whether you're rich or poor, it's your issue of perspective and how you view things. So it's easy to cross the line from saving into hoarding. Number two, a good example in the Old Testament where saving crossed over into hoarding is found in Exodus 16, the time in Jewish history after the Israelites had been freed from their slavery but had not yet reached the promised land. Um, God is faithful to keep his promises, and so having promised to provide for their needs during the journey, He sent daily manna to feed each family. That was his provision, to feed each and every family. In Exodus chapter 16, we find here a good illustration of God promising to provide for his people's daily needs, but some, still unable to fully trust God, uh, hoarded. And so let me me read that text. I printed it out for you, a large portion of it. It says, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we? That you grumble against us. I love that. Moses, you know, sometimes the leader becomes the object of the grumbling. And Moses, who am I? My God, why are you you taking issue with me? Then drop down to verse 16. It says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat, You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. Verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two armors for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep commandments and my instructions? See, the people has given you the Sabbath. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So let's make some observations from this really fascinating text and the way it's structured and written really dismantles all the liberal arguments who say, well, you know, that was bird droppings they were picking up. And yeah, I don't think so, especially the nature of how it uh, topped off an Omer and especially how it functioned on the seventh day and when they kept too much. Number five there, when God said I will rain bread from heaven in chapter 16 and verse four of Exodus, he was giving a remarkable promise because bread doesn't normally rain from heaven, obviously. Yet God promised that he would provide for Israel in this unexpected way, which should be a reminder to us that God sometimes chooses to provide from resources that we never even knew existed. And you're going to find out if you haven't discovered it yet. Then when you are obedient and when you are living based on God's financial principles, and it is a package, it doesn't include just tithing, that's a major portion of it, but saving and uh, debt, a proper view of it, how to handle it, planning, the whole thing, then God often increases one's stewardship and He entrusts people with funds sometimes that they never even thought they would have. It's really amazing. Sometimes God will provide from familiar resources and sometimes from unexpected resources. I've learned that sometimes God provides in unexpected ways to those who obey His conditional promise in tithing, and it is a conditional promise. There are some promises in the Word of God that are unconditional. God is going to do no matter what, whether you do anything or not. Uh, Jesus is coming someday to, to raise our bodies from the dead. He will literally physically raise, it has nothing to do with you and I, he's going to do it. But there are other conditional promises. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. That's a conditional promise, as is Malachi 3.10. So, to those who obey his conditional promise in tithing, such that he opens the windows of heaven and pouring out for you a blessing until it overflows. I think it is also important to note that while God promised to send bread from heaven, he did not promise to drop it into their mouths because they still had to go out and gather what they needed for every day. And One of the principles we will underscore here in this course is a work ethic. Some families suffer because there's not a healthy work ethic and one of our responsibilities as fathers and even as grandparents is to teach our children how to work i mean to teach them how to work hard to teach them how to literally physically actually sweat that's important and i don't care if they're a brainiac and they have a white collar job if they don't know how to sweat They will not be able to take that, I'm going to deny myself, though I don't feel like doing it, and carry that out into whatever professional realm that they may serve in. That's a major role that especially dads play with their kids. Um, Where are we? Number uh, 10. The The bread from heaven was to be gathered on an individual or a family basis. That's what God dictated in the text on an individual or family basis. I find it interesting that God did not command the creation of a tribal manna gathering and distribution center. For every household had to provide for itself. And a rich family could not hire a poor family to do their work for them. We do people a disservice when we convince them that the government owes them something. And God, all the way through Scripture, speaks of the need for us to be able to work and to work hard. There are those who cannot work, but those who will not work, Paul said, you shouldn't you know, give a handout to. And he gave some specific instructions in 1 Thessalonians. This miracle of bread from heaven came with a test of obedience, especially on the sixth day. When God instructed them to gather twice as much so that in the seventh day um, could be received as a day of rest. That was his plan. Six days you shall do your work, he said in Torah. On the seventh day you will have a day of rest. So on the sixth day they gathered twice as much. They prepared it all. But miraculously it didn't warm up overnight because God's hand was over that. They, clever, they clearly heard God's command and they clearly knew God's command. Yet for some reason, they felt they did not have to trust God's command. Their lack of faith to believe what God said was seen as they hoarded the manna by their overgathering, which of course only bred worms and produced a foul smell. Hoarding is not determined necessarily by how much one has saved Or by one's financial standing in society. You can be rich and be a hoarder. You can be broke, poor, slept poor, broke and be a hoarder. So it's not governed by one's financial standing in society, rather, the accumulation of wealth or things. When I say wealth, I'm just using it in a broad sense the way Proverbs does. doesn't necessarily mean that you're rich, but wealth is use of material provision. That's what the Hebrew word means. Rather, the accumulation of wealth becomes hoarding when fear, driven by a lack of trust in God's goodness, becomes greed. Fear can lead to greed. In striving to balance between saving and hoarding, we need to ask if, if it is right to save to our heart's content amassing 401Ks and Roth IRAs and college funds and stock portfolios to whatever level we deem fit. That's an important question to ask. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm going to advocate the need to save for such things. But when is enough enough? That's an important question we have already studied in the last section the parable of the rich fool if you remember where the successful man kept hoarding goods such that he reasoned this is what i will do i will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there i will store all my grain and my goods and i will say to my soul soul you have many goods laid up for many years to come take your ease eat drink and be merry but god said to him you fool this very night your soul is required of you who will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And of course, as we commented earlier, many Americans are just like this rich fool. He is prosperous, but he turned the, prosper, the, the prosperous blessing that God gave him into hoarding. He just built bigger barns so he could store more stuff, and he had a false sense of security in his wealth and in his things. And, of course, the day he retired was the day he died. Each of us needs to ask, are my savings making me wise like Joseph, who stored up provisions for a time of great need, or am I like the rich fool? making plans to store my excess only to find that I'm a fool in God's eyes. We're one or the other, and you don't want to be like the rich fool. God admonishes us to save. He does not. God admonishes us to save, but he does not want us to hoard. There's the balance. He wants us to save, but he doesn't want us to hoard. And so we're going to try to strike that balance as we work through this section. To guard our hearts from hoarding, from greed, yet at the same time to obey the command to save. Solomon wrote of the need for balance. While, um, while we're not to be like a foolish man who saves nothing... Um, because he said this, there is precious treasure in oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. So we don't want to be like the foolish man in Proverbs twenty-one twenty, who everything he gets, he swallows up. And I would say that's probably a major American problem. You get a pay raise and you automatically assume that you should elevate your lifestyle. Now you might need to elevate your lifestyle. But maybe God would have you to give more. Or maybe God would have you in that time of prosperity to save more for times when you're not so prosperous. So that's important. But here he says there's precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. In other words, he has saved some valuable commodities. Solomon's point, number 21, is that a wise man saves for the future, whereas a foolish man spends whatever he gets. He spends whatever he gets. Oh, I got a pay raise. Let's go celebrate. Let's go buy a new boat. And it's just kind of endless. In Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, God gives us a motivation for saving through the illustration of the ant, through the illustration of the ant. Let's read Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. God wrote through Solomon, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Now we learn from the ant that it is wise to set aside for lean times by not devouring everything that we have. God wants this sluggard who's really lacking, learn a lesson from the ant. And God wants us to save so that in lean times, um, we will be prepared. Sooner or later, the car will break. There may be some unexpected medical bills. Unemployment may come or underemployment may come. And life may continue on with less learning potential or possibly no earning potential as old age sets in. One of the challenges a lot of Americans are facing is we are living slightly longer The average for men have gone up, you know, two and a half years, and the average for women, three and a half years. We're living longer than we used to. Um, With that said, you know, you don't want the money to run out before life does. And how do you approach that, and how do you uh, face that? And there's a lot of maybe cultural things that we're doing that aren't always the best ways. And there are some, we'll discuss it later, family responsibilities that... Maybe even in other nations of the world that aren't necessarily even Christian, they understand the need to care for older generations in a different way than maybe we are today. Twenties, um, five. we may not know when these things will happen, but we do know they, pro- they will probably happen. So by saving for such needs, we are showing wisdom. I told you at the start of this course that we are in a time of prosperity. We have the lowest unemployment in over 50 years. It's really phenomenal. But we have a national debt that is going to strangle America. And no one really believes that. Oh, we've had, you know, it was 10 trillion, now it's 22 trillion, who cares? It's coming. And when it comes, we are going to have hard financial times. Unless someone takes the bull by the horn and makes some serious, serious decisions, it is going to come. And that's why I really want us as individuals and corporately to prepare because those times will come. You cannot spend money you have not earned. It is a law of God. And if you do it long enough, someone is going to pay. You say, well, my grandkids will pay for it. I don't think it has anything to do with your grandkids. I think it has everything to do with everyone in this room. Your money, however much you may have, will be so inflated it will be virtually worthless. So you have to prepare for times like that. And I'm going to suggest some very specific things as we work through the course. While God may choose to bail you out, if God is meeting your needs and above your needs, then as a wise steward so as not to presume upon God, we should learn a lesson from the ant and be wise and prepare for the times of need. Now, I know sometimes people say, well, I live from paycheck to paycheck, and that's true for a lot of Americans based on some of the surveys that have recently come out through the federal government. But sometimes, very often, they're living paycheck to paycheck because of poor financial decisions that they've made. They have elevated their lifestyle. If God gives you $40,000 a year to live on and you spend 50, you're basically saying, God, I'm discontent with what you supplied for me, so I'm going to spend more than you've put in my pocket. And that's why so many Americans are living from paycheck to paycheck. There is an assumption in Scripture that every Christian ought to be able to save. But if we're violating God's commands in these other areas, it's going to be very difficult to do. But thank God, He is a God of grace and He can help us and meet us where we are and we can take some corrective steps. Where are we? Yeah. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Let me read that verse again. Observe her ways, be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, and gathers her provision in the harvest. In Proverbs 6, 1 through 5, right before these verses I just read, Solomon just described how one can get into financial trouble by doing something he should not do, namely putting up security for a friend. We'll talk about that, about the foolishness sometimes of cosigning a loan and how God uh, really admonishes us not to consider that. And sometimes parents because they get weak need and they want their child to have that new car and he doesn't have the credit and they do some very stupid things. We'll talk about that. Number 29, now he describes how one can be impoverished by not doing something that he should do, namely save. So on the one hand, you can be impoverished by securing someone else's loan that makes you responsible, but sometimes we can be impoverished by not doing something that we need to do, and that's namely to save. Unlike an ant, the sluggard is lazy, does not want to work. And so the lazy man is exhorted to learn from the busy ants. Ants obviously are not lazy. Even if you're not an antologist, I don't know if that's a word, but we've all watched ants, right? And we'll see this little ant carry this big burden on top of his body and say, that's amazing what that thing is doing. Ants are not lazy, but are workers, and their colonies are built on the principle of discipline and work. I used to enjoy ants when I was a kid. Now, I hate these fire ants. They're just brutal. You know, I was planting a tree last week, just a little palm tree. I must have gotten 25 bites. Uh, They were just up and down my arm. Uh, The ants' world, in many ways, is like our world, in the sense that they have no chief, officer, or ruler who is making them work. Even the queen ant is nothing more than an egg-laying machine providing millions of eggs, that the workers can cultivate. Solomon's interest in the ant is centered on the colony's work ethic, and on the fact that ants do not have to be forced to work. They don't have to be forced to work. Unlike the sluggard, ants do not need slave drivers to fulfill their appointed tasks something that the slothful man needs to consider. Different kinds of ants have different kinds of customs. But the harvester ants and the ones he's referring to are the ones that he's observing. And so he's living in the land of Israel. So context is everything. And I gave you the technical name of Israeli ants, okay? Uh, Harvester ants found in Israel prepare their food in summer and gather their provision at harvest time. That's how they work. In other words, ants look ahead while the season is favorable to prepare for hard days in the future. So when it's a favorable season, that's the time to prepare for hard days in the future. What God has programmed the ant to do by instinct, the wise man does by common sense, or we might even say biblical sense, based on what God has revealed in Scripture. If a wise man is like an ant who prepares for the future by saving have you been wise so if an ant is wise by his saving just ask yourself am i wise sadly according to a new report released by the federal reserve this year actually it was in may 10th of 2019 just last month many of you heard it on the news 40% 40% of Americans cannot cover an unexpected, unexpected $400 expense. Well, that's pretty serious. If we should save because the wise man like the ant is one who prepares for the future, again, have you been wise? So God wants us to be wise. Now, I meet people all the time who... The battery goes in the car, and they do not have money for the battery, and they're already up to the top on their credit cards. Just simple stuff. But again, and I know whenever I teach this course, there are people in here who are in that situation. So I'm not dumping on you. I'm not discouraging you. God can help you, and God will meet you. So let's talk about a second reason to save. We should save because hard times will come. We should save because hard times are going to come. So we should save first because a wise man plans for the future, but we should also save because hard times will come. Christ taught that wisdom is expressed not simply in knowing what God has revealed, but in taking that truth and applying it to one's daily life. That's, again, the nature of wisdom. There as he closed off the Sermon on the Mount, it wasn't enough to hear the sermon, but he said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Same kind of storms. Christians and non-Christians face the same kinds of problems. Now, it is true some problems we bring on ourselves through sin, but here he's just dealing with what we call common suffering. There's common suffering in the Bible, there's carnal suffering, and there's Christian suffering. Christian suffering is the kind of suffering you experience because you are living for the Lord Jesus. Carnal suffering is the kind of suffering you experience because of your own sin, Or maybe the sin of another person, and you are, you know, the object of the things that they have done evil. But then there's just common suffering. And so both the wise man and the foolish man, he has the same storm. But the end result is very different. At the end, one guy has his house standing, and the other, when the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus compared a wise man to the man who built his house on the rock so that when the storms of life came, his house did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And the rock is defined contextually as the word of God applied. Two people can hear the same sermon. One can apply it. The other may not. God said in Proverbs 27, 12, Proverbs twenty seven twelve that a prudent man, a prudent person, foresees the danger ahead and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Now, there are seasons in life when we should save, knowing that there will be times in the future that will be challenging financially. But unfortunately, that's not the way most Americans think because the culture has trained us to think differently. And remember, in the opening messages, it dealt with stewardship. And I said, there are two economies. There's the world's economy and there's God's economy. And we automatically assume that when things are really going well financially for us, that that's a reason to spend more, but not always. Sometimes that is the best time to prepare and to save. In Genesis chapter 41, We read the story of Joseph and Pharaoh's dream where God gives Pharaoh two dreams that Joseph interprets with the same interpretation. Let me read a portion of that scripture from Genesis 41. In verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He gave, of course, God all the glory. That's one of the things that made him such a great man. Then as we drop down to verse 25 in that chapter, now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good Ears are seven years, the dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. God, even in the dream, is acting on the principle that he reveals that everything is to be confirmed on the basis of two witnesses. So two dreams was an affirmation from God, as Joseph reminds us. Because of Joseph's credibility, reputation, and integrity, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the entire country, and Joseph sets immediately to work, storing grains and resources during the seven years of Plenty. Joseph organizes an entire country and works diligently in the present to save for the future. And just as God had foretold, the seven years of plenty came to an end, and the entire world is struck by famine. However, because of Joseph's diligence to save, God used him to provide food for the surrounding countries during the famine and to preserve Israel as a nation from whom the Savior of the world would come. Joseph was wise by applying what God had revealed. And in order to be prepared, he was willing to sacrifice some of the short-term comforts for the long-term needs. And that's a really pretty critical principle. They probably weren't eating a lot of quote-unquote steak dinners or purchasing new chariots, but that's what we would do in America, right? Time of plenty, man, let's go and spend it, buddy. No, during the seven years of plenty, they were steadily saving, that's what they did. Joseph is an example of one with wisdom to save in times of plenty in order to have needs met in times of hardship. No doubt, they were not incurring any new debt as a nation in order to be prepared for the coming crisis. We may not know what's coming in seven years, or even in seven months, or even in seven hours, right? However, God calls us to be faithful and to prepare for the unexpected. And we're going to get very specific. We're going we're to get down to where the rubber meets the road, if you'll stick with me in these weeks on saving. We also learned from Joseph that some of the funds we might set aside will not only serve us, but possibly extended family, members of the body of Christ and others, especially in the time of a national financial crisis. If you have studied the Great Depression at all that took place in the 1920s and early 30s, um, so many Americans lost their homes. And some of the older generation who had acted more providently, uh, and just the whole mindset of even how to handle personal family finances has changed. Uh, there was a time in America, for instance, you could not get a house loan longer than 15 years. And that was true in Canada until about 20 years ago. Um, now I think you can get a car loan for that long, can't you? It's pretty amazing. Um, but people saved. And of course, the younger generation um, were in the worst situation during the Great Depression. And many of them, because their parents had been wise and we were much more infected with a biblical Judeo-Christian ethic, they had a place to go and a place to live. And if there was a national crisis, really, if If anyone is in a situation to help, it should be the body of Christ. Because you see that in the book of Acts, when there is a real collapse in the economy and they share things in common, they have places to stay and food to share, and there is a community and a fellowship and a love that the body of Christ has that the rest of the world doesn't know. What does the rest of the world typically do? Well, just look at Venezuela, look at Greece they'll slit your throat. They'll break into your house. The bank situation was so bad, we happened to be in Greece doing a tour called The Footsteps of Paul. And the bank situation was so bad, people could not trust to put their money in the banks. And so they kept it in their homes. And people were breaking into their homes and stealing their life savings. There's a, there's a violence There's the rule of law begins to diminish when there's a national crisis. But what we are headed for, unless, again, there's corrective steps, it's going to make the Great Depression of the 1920s look dim. It's going to pale compared to what we are headed for. So um, what number are we on? 16, thank you, i glad someone's... 15, 15, are, as we are going to study, when God asks us to save, very often it is not simply for ourselves, but also to give us the opportunity to be generous to others. The resources that God entrusts to wise stewards are designed not simply to serve them, but others, as the Apostle Paul taught in Galatians 6. In Galatians 6, 9, and 10, he says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Now, contextually, he's talking about you reap what you sow, but he actually applies it in the financial realm, and uh, though it obviously has a broader application. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith." So when God calls us to meet people in need, our highest priority is the household of faith. And our secondary priority are other people, but it begins with the household of faith. And that's how we have to function in our benevolence as a church. We have endless people who come in need. And so in a broad sense, we can very often say, hey, you know, we have a food pantry out there and you're welcome to go there and you'll get $75 worth of groceries. And before we had the food pantry, we had to do food vouchers. And I had an arrangement with a local bilo where when they came with a CBC voucher, they couldn't buy cigarettes or alcohol with it. And there were certain parameters in terms of how it could be spent. But we never wanted someone to be hungry or a child not to have medicine or those kinds of things. But the needs are endless. You can't help everyone. And so God says, we begin with the household of faith, but it, it's also to all people. So wisdom dictates how you administer and care for those funds, because I view those funds as hard-earned tithe dollars. Someone works hard for that money, and I don't want to give it to a sluggard. I don't want to pour it down a dark hole where it's not going to be really solve a problem, but only perpetuate it. In the time of a financial famine, God may use us to help others who are not prepared, giving us a chance to show Christ's love and to advance his kingdom. And really, if we do hit a financial crisis in America, I guarantee the churches will fill up again. There'll be an opportunity. Now we saw that after 9-11 for about a month. And that's how long it lasted, about a month. But sometimes God brings a nation to its knees When the God who provides so generously and graciously has been spurned and ignored, where there's no praise or thanksgiving and God can use that in a positive way and he can use our expression of love and care to people as a witness and an opportunity to bring them into the kingdom. If you're living under the world's economy and not God's, then most likely you have not yet learned from the ant who has saved for future times of need. If this is your situation, do not be discouraged because we're going to learn in this course how to be ready for an emergency, how to get out of debt, and how to prepare for the long-term needs that we may incur as we age. As we understand God's principles of finance and apply them, we will discover that just like the Lord Jesus taught and like all of God's commands, they're not restrictive but freeing. They're not restrictive, but freeing. This is an interesting text in John that I'll close off with. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, and I've told you before that every time you see the word believe in Scripture, it's not always in reference to conversion. Sometimes it's only in reference to someone who intellectually has embraced a message, but it has not really touched the heart. And so in the parable of the sower, um, Jesus describes one group of people where he says, those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear receive the word with joy. They get emotional. These have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in time of temptation fall away. He's describing not a believer who breaks fellowship, but a man who never comes to faith. He gets emotional. He ascribes to the message intellectually but it's not real life changing, he's not born again. And that's what Jesus is dealing here in this quotation. To these Jews who'd believed, and he goes on, what do you mean set free, they say? We've always been free, we've never been enslaved to anybody. Jesus, we're we're Abraham's children. If you're Abraham's children, you do the deeds of Abraham, but as it is, you are of your father, the devil. They were not converted, yet they'd believed intellectually, only intellectually. And I say that to say that we can hear a message on a Sunday morning and intellectualize it and not be changed by it. And knowledge without application, Paul warns, just makes us prideful and puffs us up. And we're going to learn some principles that for some of us, is going to be, they're going to be hard to hear, especially when we get to the section on debt. But if we will take it to heart and apply them, we'll find real, true freedom. It's true with any dimension of God's Word when it's applied to life. Let's bow in prayer. Now he's telling them a parable to show them at all times that they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying give me legal protection from my opponent for while he was unwilling but afterward he said to himself even though i do not fear god nor respect me and yet because this widow bothers me i will give her legal protection otherwise by continually coming she will wear me out and the lord said hear what the unrighteous judge said now will not god bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Wherever, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Father, please help it not to be said of us, of this fellowship of believers, that we lacked faith in seeking your throne. Thank you that we are not like those that bother you but we are welcome to the throne of grace. You told us to cast every care upon you because you care for us. We certainly, our Father, want to thank you for some of your great answers to prayer. Thank you for the team that just came to the airport an hour or so ago, texted me, and what a great trip they had from the Ukraine. Thank you for bringing them back safely. And thank you for those who invested their time and their money and their effort the kingdom of God to bring the gospel there. So we come to you, Father. We, we know that you're not bothered, that you would love to hear from us. You promised the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And so we come, we're not asking in our name tonight, but in the mighty name of Christ, that he would be glorified. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can, because of your cross, approach you as our intercessor. And even when we don't know how to pray as we ought, that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf to you. We bless you now in your holy and precious name, amen.